Hello, my friends. Welcome to another Live with Matt Rad. As always, we are sponsored by nobody. We don't charge. All this knowledge is free. All that we ask in return is that you share it with somebody. This is a really a pleasure to be able to talk to my talented friends. I'm going to try to start expanding into some more conversations beyond mix engineers. I have a few people I've spoken to about it. I've also been traveling a ton, so it's been hard to coordinate. I know we've been off a few weeks here and there. We're going to have a few more spotty weeks the next few as well. But appreciate you guys joining the Discord, leaving comments, showing love, sharing it with people. It's it's really cool to see this community build, and I'm really happy to be able to have these conversations with my friends and be able to share it with y'all. Today, I spoke with TZO, who I hadn't talked to in a while. He's had at least one number one. He's just finishing a Chris Brown album, which is total chaos for him, but really always interesting to talk to him about it because he is the mix engineer and recording engineer and coordinator of so many things as he talks about today. Um, We got into some more of the nitty gritty of his mix process, mix bus stuff, trying to get things bright without being harsh, talked about his assistant a bit, microphones, co-mixing, and much, much more. It's always a pleasure to talk to him. Thank you guys for listening. Here's my conversation with TZO. My boy. Hey, what's good, man? How are you? How's everything? Things are good, man. It's uh, I'm in Oakland hanging with the family for a week or so, and uh, it's about to be like 92 here. I was out uh, working with my father out in the property. He's got some, got some grapes and got some trees and got some garden going on. It was getting uh, 102 out there, so we went out and did some early morning work. Come back, do some live with you. Yes, sir. Say hello to the people. How are you doing, man? I know uh, we, we chatted briefly last night. You've been uh, you've been in it. You got a release coming out in a couple of days. Where are you at with that? Yes. Shit. Delivered and ready to come out finally. Obviously, there's going to be a deluxe. So I'm like, even though I've delivered the main project, I still have one more hill to, to, to go over, um, which is deluxe and everything. But it's been a lot. It's been hot as fuck. I mean, it's been... Yesterday was 102 out here. It was just horrible. So hot. <laughs> Your air conditioning working well, keeping the gear cool. Yeah, you know when I got when I got the house, the first thing we did was put a brand new air conditioner because the last thing I needed was to be working and then some air conditioner from the 90s like goes out and I can't work and all my shit overheats. I can't tell you. I mean, you you know this and and many people watching probably know this. I swear I probably had a dozen studio situations over the years, not necessarily my studio, but just studios in general where like it gets really hot. AC's not quite doing what it needs to do or the AC overheats, freezes up, whatever. I don't, you know, I don't know how ACs work. Yeah. AC in a, in building a studio, maybe a, AC and power might be the most important parts. When the air goes out in a studio, a proper studio with a console and stuff, it's miserable. It's miserable. It's yeah, it's the craziest thing. But if you're in the cold, they're great heaters. So you know, there's that. Yeah, I mean, if you live like in New York, if it's snowing outside, and I mean, you wouldn't really have you wouldn't really have those issues in New York. But you could just pop a door open and let that cold air, and you'll be all right. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So you've been you've been in it. I don't know. Uh, again, like what what has been revealed, or how you know all these rollouts are. Um, you got to be careful about what you reveal and what you don't. I know he's he released some sort of track list. How many? Can you can you tell us how many songs you actually mixed? How many records do you? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you this process like, on the back end. Yeah, for the recording for the recording process, it was probably like 170, 200 records. You know what I mean over the course of time. Um, but as far as mixing, I probably mixed a good sixty-five of them. So when you say one hundred and fifty, two hundred songs, this is you know his last album was what twenty nineteen, something like that. So you've had several years over the pandemic and you recorded yeah. just tons of songs. But then when you do those, presumably you're doing, you do a quick rough mix. So there's something to hear. Just to hear, yeah. And that, and that record, unless it becomes a record that becomes used, it'll never have a mix. It'll always just be that original rough. You know what I mean? And um, those are usually you mixing a vocal into a two-track, just as like no, no. Rough, so right? well, the rough, yeah. If you're call, talking about the rough. the rough that I create, it's the two-track beat that we have, or whatever, and then just leveling the vocals in so it's listenable. Um, I don't try to put too much time into 
the rough only because I know what is expected of the rough with Chris. With other clients, like some clients probably prefer it to sound almost done. Right. Um, in which case, so everyone's different. Like, and I don't, with CB, it's like he doesn't really care how good, I mean, if it's listenable at least, it's good enough. Putting any more time to that is just going to, it's just going to cost me more time in the mix phase because I'm going to do all that in the mix stage anyways. Um, and I usually can't keep a lot of that stuff that I'm doing unless it's like a delay or some cool effect that I can keep. But like the EQing and the routing and all that stuff that happens during my mix is different than what's happening in the recording session. So things are going to change anyways. EQs will change because I'm now EQing a vocal to a fully mixed stem of the beat versus mixing it to a two track, which may have a loud snare. And think about it, the snare dictates the placement of where the vocal goes, right? Hmm. If a record is supposed to have a loud snare because it's like a boom bap type of hip-hop record, not to say that a loud snare is bad or good, I'm just saying yeah. if it does have a loud snare, you're going to approach the vocal placement different than if the snare was regular or lower. You know what I mean? Yeah. And every sound is different. I mean, a record doesn't have to have the snare at one place. It could have a loud snare or it could have a low mm -hmm. snare, but that's going to dictate where the vocals go. And so when you actually are mixing a song properly, because you have access to the stems, individual snare sound and all that, you then get control to place it how you want. And then exactly. you make the vocal feel a certain way based on that. Yeah, because the way that the snare, when I'm talking about a loud snare, the way that it's loud in the demo is not the same way it's loud in the mix. <laughs> I can have it loud without it being abrasive or hurting your ears versus in the demo, it's loud. It's hurting your ears and it's abrasive. There's a way to create that same feeling of there being a loud snare or a loud element just in general um, and not having it be an element that's bothering, right? Yeah. Because anything too loud is going to bother your ears. If it's too loud, it's, it's too loud, right? Well, this so, seems to be... Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Keep no, 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 go ahead. I was just, uh, you know, I was I was going to ask more CB questions, but you actually started touching on something that I, I was one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. I remember when we did the roundtable discussion, which it was uh, it was great to have you for that. You know, yes, a month or two ago with you and me and Baines and, and and John hosting and Be Matt Beckley and Key, and it was it was a lot of fun. That I remember the great question at the end uh, was one of the Discord questions, which is, "What are you currently working on?" And I'm going to paraphrase, so feel free to correct. But you were talking about you were really focused at that time a couple months ago. So I assume it's similar now of how to get things to be kind of like maximum brightness and clarity without harshness. And it yep. seems to be kind of what you're talking about, whether it's a snare drum, whether it's a vocal, I mean, those are kind of maybe the main things that are really going to poke out at the high mids. Right. Um, how are you approaching those things? What has, what has evolved since then? What do you use and what do you like? And I, I think this is like the, 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 kind of quintessential challenge of our time is to like, you know, we hear a lot of mixes that are just way too bright and that you just kind yeah. of go, ah, but if you can get that, like, as I told you that, that, uh, first class mix that the Jack Harlow record, um, is a really, really great mix because of how clear it is and how bright it is, but it is not harsh. And I told you, I think I texted you, it came yeah. up on a pop playlist and somewhere, um, and it just was so much more clear than the other records, but didn't have that like kind of amateurish brightness that you hear if you go scroll through New Music Friday. What, what, are, you, what are you working on these days in terms of that? So I'll just touch on quickly the main reason why I've kind of going towards that direction is because I've been getting so many demos and so many rough mixes from people to mix the record that are just super bright. And the problem when a demo is really, really bright is that no matter what you do in the mix, the demo being brighter will make it feel like there's more energy. People right? get stuck on the brightness of that. Yeah, because they feel like, okay, yeah, his mix is hitting hard, cool, everything's great, but this one feels more exciting. The hi-hats are more bright and the vocal is clearer. And even though it's maybe too clear, it may be too bright, what I've noticed is that what seems abrasive to me is not abrasive to the client. And taste the, is definitely changing. I mean, like it yeah. always changes. And, and I changes. also feel yeah. like I take care of my hearing more than a normal person does. So my, my thought process is that the average person, because they don't protect their ears when they go to concerts or when they do whatever, or they blast music constantly in the car. I mean, like 
I don't even listen to music in the car just to listen to mixes and just feel them out and then that's it, cut it off. Um, because of that, I would assume that their top end is more doled out, in which case those harsh frequencies are not going through the way they are for me. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I've noticed is like, yeah, but the demo's harsh and it's like they don't know, they don't think it's harsh. They just think it's bright. So that's the main thing that I've been competing. Now there's a way of doing it where it's bright, but it's not super abrasive. Um, that is the delicate balance that I've been trying to balance with is trying to figure out how to get things to be more exciting than the demo. Because even if I'm like, yo, this makes us fire. When you play it against something else is where you realize. And that goes across the board. You hear a rough mix, you're like, that shit's pretty good. I'm not going to lie. It's pretty good. And then you mix it and then you compare it and you're like, fuck. My mix is killing. The, like the demo doesn't even feel the same because you have something to compare it to. It's all about yeah. relativity, right? It's all about like referencing something against it, and that's how you're able to really gain. You know what I mean? Like some sometimes I get a demo, like I got a little Nas demo, and I was like, this this is fire. Then when I mixed it, I was like, oh, okay, now the vocals are more forward and clear, but I, there's nothing to compare it to before. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? so that's another thing is you got these people. I actually just did a mix for this guy, this Spanish artist, who I won't say uh, his name, but basically the demo was very bright. The demo did not hit at all, though. Right. So it was super bright. So I went through two revisions where it was like, make everything brighter, make everything brighter. <laughs> um, and so some of the things that I did was obviously I added the 16K boost on the on the knee on the VT5. I on the Ruby, I put that on my master and I just turned the red light on in the top right corner. When you turn that on, it actually brightens things, which is weird, but it's really cool. It just gives you it, it's like when you want to brighten something, but you don't know exactly where and you don't want it to be a lot. It just needs to be like a hair. For some reason, that button works. Mm. Um, so I'll do that. And then I might even take an EQ like a like a Neutron 3 and throw it on the on the master bus before all of my, my limiting and everything and just literally shelf up. 0.3, 0.4, 10K and above all the way up and just kind of give yeah. it that sheen. But there's been so much control happening in every step of the mix that by the time I'm adding this 0.2 or 0.3 sheen, which is nothing, things are getting brighter and they're getting slightly more exciting, but not past the point where you're like, things are getting abrasive. I got to go back to the mix now to adjust things. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so let's talk about the... You're talking about doing things with all that control before you go. And if you get a request to brighten something, you can just kind of do a slight move. Um, I know that 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 seems to be the main challenge of getting something bright without harshness. Um, uh, you, you mentioned the the DW Fern, the Hazel Rig uh, VT5. Yep. Um, are the, what are some of the other tools? Are you using saturation stuff, outboard plugins? I know you got a you got a. Um, a, an uh, undertone audio on Fairchild at, at one point. I don't know what you're using that for these days, or you got plugins you like clip gain. There's some questions about clip gain and clip effects. I mean, it sounds like I assume it's kind of all of these things, but um, maybe you could just talk through some of that stuff. I know people are very curious. Yeah. So outboard gear, I have the 5057 Neve summing mixer, um, which is just really flat. It just runs 16 channels of, um, something happening. There's nothing that I'm doing on there. I have the, have you, have you seen the texture? There's this texture knob on it mm -hmm. with a blue light. So it's got blue, it's got this silk button. So the silk can either be red or blue. The blue is like more saturated low end stuff and the red is more like top end stuff. So I use the blue only because what I noticed with the red was it was kind of like a weird top end frequency abrasiveness that was giving to all my mixes. Hmm. So I stopped using it and I just relied on just like the low end stuff, which doesn't which helps in creating stuff a, to be a little bit rounder in my opinion i mean like anything that's going to just warm up that bottom a little bit is just going to make things less like glass and more rounded off um and then from there that's going to the dw fern and then uh the what's it called the fairchild is just for vocals so i'll just run a lead vocal through there and run it through there and commit it down and write down the settings and where where in the process are you, are you doing clip gaining and any things like that before you go to the um, to the unfair child or are you is that early in the process what you know what are you doing with that so yeah so I'll do uh, any clip gaining that I have to do will be will happen sort of in sort of in the beginning so that I can kind of get things more leveled out before I start doing anything and relying on the compressor to 
um, squeeze everything together. So I'll do that. I'll cut out any breaths, anything that I want to get out or lower S's, any of that cleanup. Um, and then I'll EQ it first and kind of that my first level, my first round of EQing is just getting bad stuff out, cutting off the bottom, notching out any bad frequencies. Um, and then from there, what I'll do is I'll throw the pull tech on there and just add some 10 K. Um, and then that's when I put the Fairchild on. Okay. After so I've it- cleaned up everything and I've gotten like my top end nice, then I'll hit the Fairchild. And then at that point, um, What'll happen with the 10K? So once I boost, when I'm only in the part where I'm on the EQ and then the, the pull tech, after that, the vocals kind of, it's clear, it's missing those bad frequencies, which is good, but it's still a little bit out of control. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Overall. So then I hit the Fairchild, slight compression. I mean, like half a dB, a dB of compression, just touching it. There are cases where I'll hit it harder. It just depends on what's happening. Right? If I turn it a little bit and it hits harder, I'm like, oh, that sounds good. Then obviously I'll keep it. Um, but I try not to do more than like a dB of reduction or, you know, half a dB. And real um, quick, on, what's the range of when you're getting vocals? Obviously, with the CB stuff, you're tracking it. So it's, you know, exactly how it's sounding. But what's the range of processing? Are you getting mostly fairly processed vocals? Are you getting some totally raw vocals? What's oh, the that's a great question. That? So lately, because music's kind of been, music's kind of been like, going into this phase where like there's a lot of effects on vocals um i'm working on this um what's it called this rico nasty stuff and the vocals that she does like her style has a lot of dope shit on her vocals distortion crazy reverbs weird um weird like doubler phasey things that are like on the lead on the lead not like a background type of thing um and in those cases because i need to preserve it to the T. Like I want to preserve how the record sounds with all those effects. And I just want to touch on that stuff. So lately what I've been doing is if the record is one of those records, and I always make sure before, like I'll be like, who's the artist? And if they're like, it's this artist. And then I go and I listen, I'm like, okay, this artist has a very specific sound to their vocal. That sounds like there's a lot of shit going on to create this sound. I'll say, send everything wet to me. Like send everything wet. Yeah. Like with everything on it. Um, if yeah, I yeah. want, occasionally I'll be able to get the reverb separate. The reverbs and delays, what I mean by wet is like all the BQs and the doublers and the CLAs, all that shit. Yeah. Reverbs and delays, I usually ask for separate just so that I can have control of how much reverb and delay once I start squeezing everything. Um, but I've actually preferred, it actually gets me so much closer. Hmm. It gets me so much closer to the to the demo when I just ask for everything wet. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, they'll give me, sometimes I'll get like a wet and dry so I can figure it out. You know what I mean? There's also, you got to think about it. There's a lot of times where there's an effect that Pro Tool, that doesn't exist for Pro Tools. Like people sometimes are working in FL. I've seen a lot of shit done in FL and they're using these cool ass plugins that don't really exist outside of FL. Um, and so at that point, recreating that would be a total bitch, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get the exact sound. Not all doublers and wideners sound the same. You know what I mean? They have different aspects to them. So I'm curious, uh, just as a sort of an aside, um, are you doing lots of, again, probably not the, the Chris Brown stuff, but other stuff, are you doing lots of co-mixing things with people who have kind of like their vocal engineers and things like that? I know that that is, is a thing for some artists and not for others. Are you mostly taking sort of soul mixing responsibilities? What's how are those things playing out these days? What's the climate? Um, like? So co mixing is dope. It's a great way to get into doors that otherwise you wouldn't be able to get into. Um, a lot of times, especially with how important the recording engineer has become to the artist in today's day versus ten years ago, um, a lot of times these engineers that they have create the sound for them. You know what I mean? So, for example, on the on the album, we have a bunch of features. I would say 40 to 50% of the features, I relied on their engineer to sort of give me what the artist wants, and then I'll take it from there. Um, and that's a co-mixing credit. There was one record, actually. There's a record called uh, Wheels Fall Off that's on Chris's album. That's the first album on the... This first song on the album. Um, and... Dirk got on it. And so I had Baines mix it. Oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. So basically I I hit Baines and I was like, "Yo, um 
do you want to do this with me? You know what I mean? And why, so, why did you choose to do that? Um, well, there's multiple reasons. There's a lot of stuff going on with the YSL stuff. Yeah, of course. And I wanted to, you know, in, in that verse, Chris says, and it's out online. He actually did this. Have you seen this video where there's a microphone hanging and Chris is rapping on it? I think I've um, seen it. I don't, I don't, yeah, there's a clip. So he says, free one and slime as his first line on the verse. Um, mm. So that is, the record's called Wheels Fall Off and all that stuff. So um, what's it called? So I hit Baines and I was like, yo, I want you to be a part of this record with me. Yeah. That's, I mean, because, you know, and that's, that, that's kind of, and, and it's like, I could have mixed the record myself, but I was like, no, like Baines is one of my closest friends. Um, he's in, you know, there's a situation happening right now and this record, you know, music heals, like this record is kind of <clears throat> touching on that type of stuff. So I wanted him to be a part of it with me. Um, so he yeah, just shout, shout, shout out Baines. We love Baines. Yeah. So Baines, so there's situations where I'll personally reach out to people and be like, yo, I want to do this with you. You know what I mean? Like, let's do it together, you know, because with the CB stuff, I definitely have control over the mixing, everything that's going on. And like, so for me, it was like dope to do that. Um, I love co-mixing. Like with the, with the first class, that was co-mix between me, me and Nikki, you know, because Nikki is Jack's engineer. Yeah. So Nikki knows what Jack wants. You know what I mean? And, and that's important to have in the room because you get that much closer. I want to, I want to get these mixes on mix two, mix one really, but mix two or three, when you're at mix 17, you're like, bro, <laughs> mix 20, you're just like, oh my God, what have we been doing? You know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely, man. Well, so. it's, it's, it, that gets back to one of the things I was going to ask you before. It seems like you've been a part of uh, Chris's world for so long that you're taking on a lot of kind of coordinating, you know, uh, A&R-ish, executive producer-ish, like these things where you're really making sure things happen. Is that continue to develop in that direction what's what what are you coordinating besides just being a mixer i mean we, we talk a lot on on these streams about doing more than your job and those are the people that are the most successful like you're chris's engineer and you mix but you do so many other things and right you know you're a great mixer you're a great engineer but i imagine you doing all these other things is is part of what makes you indispensable for him and for the process what yes. else are you up to in this process well well it's very so see the thing about that is that me wanting to do more because it can be confused because i just thought of a situation the other day where i was mixing a record um for Columbia, okay, and I was on the phone with Ron Perry doing shit and having a conversation, and I wasn't like doing what I would normally do for CB, which is like, oh, okay, um, there's a sample I heard in there that we need to get cleared, we need to do this. That's not where I cross over. When I'm mixing, when I'm working outside of CB, I'm filling just the mix, the mix position. Yeah, right. With CB, it's different because I have all these other roles recording. A lot of people rely on me for the information for who was in the room that night. Lawyers might call me, hey, this guy is saying that he wrote on this record. Do you know who this is? <laughs> Man, I was there that night and he I don't know who that person is. He wasn't there. So they rely on me for so much more versus yeah. when I'm mixing for other people, I'm the outside guy. You know what I mean? So outside of CB, I don't try to step too like because obviously it's it's a it's a positive to be able to do all these extra things, but you can't walk into a situation where all those things are already being taken care of. And you're like, well, I do this already. So I'm just going to do this too. Totally. You have to, it's all about judging. Like, I don't know. It's weird. I, I definitely act and take choices different, make different decisions when I'm working with CB because I'm the one sort of running the show there as far as like doing the mixes and delivering and doing all this shit versus with other shit. There's other people doing that actual A&Rs at the labels that are saying, Hey, we need stem delivery. We need Atmos. Can you do the Atmos? Da, da, da. That's all me. In, when Chris's position, that's all me. Okay, I have the stems. I'm going to create the Atmos. I'm going to deliver the Atmos. I'm going to deliver the stereo album. It's me doing everything. Um, so I think that that sort of thought process works really well when you're in a team. You know what I mean? When you're inside the team. With yeah, everyone else that I'm working with, I'm not in their team. I'm just part of the exterior team that does the mixing. You know? It's definitely something that I, I think about a lot because I do so many different roles from exec yes. producing and writing and producing and playing on records and mixing and sometimes just being a finisher. Like that I think is something that is a, it's an underrated skill to be able to adjust based on what the relationship uh, is. Um, 
Let's see. Tizio went away for a second. Let's see if we can get him back. Looks like the chat's still going. Um, for people who uh, haven't watched many of these, these are all up on my IGTV, but also if you go on YouTube, I've got a few other conversations with TZO. Okay, TZO left. I think maybe his, his shit went off for a second. Um, but uh, you can check out other conversations with TZO, lots of conversations with Baines with, uh, and then mostly with John Costelli. So you should definitely go check those out. I'm going to grab TZO again. Here we go. you're all good you're all you're all good i just got to i was able to take a minute to point people to the youtube channel we got a discord where you know, people are asking lots of questions some of these we've talked about i got a lot of questions this week um that are questions you and i have talked about before so if you guys haven't watched i've got i don't know two three other conversations with you so if you go up on the live with matt rad youtube you can check those out there's lots of clips and things as well um but yeah i was just saying you know that the, the 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 skill that I think gives people big careers is really about figuring out what the relationship is and where you can fit in and where the limits are, where you can help out extra. And you're right. right. Sometimes it's sometimes it's getting out of the way. I mean, as a songwriter, I talk about this all the time. It's sometimes there've been sessions when I'm in there and I write 85% of the song with three other people, because that's just what the day called for. And there's other days where I play a couple chords and two people get on a thing and I just get out of the way. And exactly. That's exactly. great. That's great. Yep. You got to just know where you fit in at any given point. That's, I think the most valuable thing is reading the room, right? Is understanding what room you're walking in and how to deal with it. You know what I mean? When I go to one place versus another, I have to adjust according, you know what I mean? It's just part of it and blending in. Yeah. So what are what are all the various things that you I mean, you, you mentioned several of them since you're there and you're often, I don't know, I, I always like to say, quote unquote, the adult in the room when everybody else is running around and creative things are happening and you're actually running, you're running things. You get the call from the lawyer of who is this person they're claiming publishing. If you need to coordinate, right. you know, if Chris wants guitar on a record, you you coordinate those sorts of things. You're obviously doing yep. most mixes and regular mixes and stems and stems for live and all of that. How do you... Yep. How do you manage that? Do you have a, you you do have an assistant now? You yes. did it for a while, but you got somebody I, now. I have an assistant. His name is Ignacio. Shout out Ignacio. Um, he does, shout out Ignacio. He does all the shit. Like literally, I sit down now. The set the mix is set up. I just start mixing, and then, you know, if I want, if I need him to like copy a bunch of plugins down to like other stuff, I'll be like, can you copy all these plugins down so I can start with these vocals or whatever. Um, he'll do all that. Then I'll sit back down, finish the mix. When I'm done with the mix, I'll just get up and be like, okay, run that. So he'll call the mix, whatever, mix one. He'll bounce it. He'll text it to me. I'll listen to it on headphones. I'll listen to it in the car, wherever. And I'll be like, and if there's no changes, I'll be like, all right, cool, let's send it. He'll go into my text messages on my computer, find whoever it goes to, text it to them, blah, blah, blah. If there's a change, I'll be like, yo, turn the snare down half a dB. So he'll pull it back up, make a save as, turn the snare half a dB, run the new mix, mix two, text it to me back on headphones so he's doing all that and then when we're delivering he makes mastering stems and he runs um well he runs the stems for atmos uh so that's as far so that really helps me because that stuff right there is very time consuming like when you're sitting yeah. in a chair just bouncing a kick bouncing a snare bouncing a hi-hat it's very time consuming and you have to watch it because there could be an error there could be like a little fart from one of the you know digital fart happening so yep after you have to really pay attention um, so for him to do that, it allows me to make phone calls, emails, deal with my schedule, step out if I need to run to the store or do something. Whereas before it'd be like, okay, I have to do all this shit and then I'll be able to leave here, you know, at six 30 tonight, you know, and, and do whatever I have to do. Whereas now it's like, I can leave him. Like I just left him making stems an hour ago while I ran to the store to grab some shit and come back. He made stems, you know, after we're done with everything today, he's going to send off all the files that need to be sent off. Um, so he does all the stuff that I would normally do, but it was, I didn't actually have to be the one to do it. Anyone can send an email. Anyone can run stems. Well, if you, yeah. as long as you run Pro Tools, and, <laughs> not anyone can run stems. Anyone can send an email, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> um, but a lot, of, most people can, um, you know, he's really good at Pro Tools and does what he does. So I'm happy with that. As far as what you were talking about before, the roles that I have to take on, just to be, we'll just name them off specifically. So obviously the recording side, right? You still there? 
Oh, you I lost question? you for a second. I can I oh. can hear you now. Can you hear me? Okay, I hear you. Um, so it's the recording side of stuff, right? Which is receiving files from producers, filing that together, making uh, making sessions to record in, or receiving a song that's already fully written, and then or it's just an idea, and then putting that in the session and getting it ready. So then we record the song. Once the song is being used for something, I have to reach out to the producer and be like, hey, I need the splits from your side of things. Meaning, if you produce the song with anyone else, if you use the sample that you know of, all that stuff, all that information. So the producer gets me all the information, right? Which is usually going to be all the, all the production stuff and then possibly writing. If there's writing on the record and they were there when the record was written, they'll send me the splits from the writers as well. Once the writers' splits are in, then I figure out... Right. Then I get all that. Well, I get all that information. This Chris's manager, Chris's manager deals with DB on, on how what everyone's you know the final splits that come that leaves my hands. I collect everything. Give it to him. Cool. So then that's one thing. Then I start dealing with the label with um with delivery. So the label's gonna be like, we need main, clean, instrumental, acapella, TV track, boom. So create that. Then they said they want Atmos and Sony three sixty. So we make the stems. Those same stems that I make for Atmos and 360 also go to the live show. So that's for Chris's live show. So then we create the Atmos. Once we create the Atmos, we take that ADM and we convert it and run a, a 360 and readjust things for the 360 mix. So it's like all the way down. Then I deliver everything to the label. You know, it's like all the way. Well, thank you. Everything. This is Ignacio, by the way. Hello. Hey, hello. what's up, Ignacio? Oh, man. Nice to meet you. He brought coffee. My pleasure. Hey, there's many jobs. Um, everyone does a lot of shit. Sometimes he's making stems, and I'm the one getting coffee. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I like that. But a lot. yeah, so we'll that's kind of all the different I, roles that I have to take on to make sure that because it's like if I don't do it, someone will do it. But it's going to take a long time for them to figure out that it, they have to do it, and then by that time, like everyone's pissed off, and the producers are like, "What the fuck?" You know what I mean? So <laughs> it's better if I just get it done, turn it all in. And then everyone could be like, look, man, fucking, you made sure that we had the credits on there, and I appreciate it. That's it. So, uh, uh, when is, uh, and you, there was a little bit of, uh, there was a little bit of glitching as you were talking about it. You, you mentioned you actually get all of the information from the producers in terms of splits, publishing splits, co credit splits, if they have a sample, that sort of thing. That process happens when once chris decides this is going on the album or once yep. chris decides you know because you said you recorded 150 to 200 songs but then you mixed probably 50 or 60 right it you when you presumably when you're mixing those 50 or 60 you're going to the producer and say hey this is in contention send me stems but you don't worry about send splits me and things then yeah no no splits until we've the thing is that the track list is fully uh fully done that's when you go in and do it, man. That's that is quite a bit of things. Somebody had a question this week on what's what's the checklist before you send things off to um, to a client. But that sounds like the maximum checklist where you're just that's the yeah. But no one, I mean, no mixer or recording engineer the, uh, alone is going to have to contend with that. If you're the recording engineer and you're not mixing the album, well, you know what? I'm not going to say that because as the recording engineer, before I was actually mixing Chris's stuff, I was still getting the stems. And getting the splits, it's just something that became a thing when I was became one artist's head engineer, right? And there was no one else. Yeah, it's funny. There's, there's, a, I think one of the things that um, one way to talk about how people get opportunities is not to try and go do everything, but as soon as there's an opportunity <laughs> where a job is not being done, uh, volunteer yourself for it or just get it done. Yeah, if, if you can see very exactly clearly, it. like nobody's coordinating, getting all this stuff, just be like, ah, I'll just do it. And you figure out how to do it. And yes. then all of a sudden you become very valuable. It's different than saying, oh, this person's doing it, but I'll do it faster. And now you're stepping on toes and possibly pissing people off. And, you know, so it's that's that that goes back to what? Reading the room, right? Reading, Reading room. figuring out what the situation is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have a question about your your assistant. How long did it take? to train him to the point where you just go cool i'm going to the store you you do these six things i would say what like four months like three days oh shut up he said three days <laughs> he's a fucking dick no like four months 
Yeah, and, and most of that is obviously, you know, he, he knows how to do a lot of the stuff. It's just figuring out how you particularly it's, it's how like I to do it. it. Yeah, because like if you say, okay, run these stems, you can run stems in a multitude of ways, but there's a specific pattern or order of things, which is open the session, which is the mix session that you're now going to create mastering from, right? When you open that session, you immediately make a save as. It becomes the mastering save because what will happen is let's say there's let's say we do the mastering and then they're like oh we want to change the mix we want to do something so i'll go back to the mix six and i'll do a save as that becomes mix seven and then yep. when mix seven is approved then we create mix seven mastering so he right. creates the mix seven mastering session now that's that right then he recalls to make sure that the recalls are the same which is the fern yep then he lowers the output of the uh What's it called? The summing mixer, so that it's that's my that's how I lower the mix down for to give the headroom for um, yeah, so it's not clipping and getting all that extra yeah, which is not clipping anyways because the limiter comes after. But I'm just hitting everything less hard, and that's mm. kind of been what works best. When I take my limiter off, when I take my limiter off, it becomes very difficult to recreate this, this the same vibe as the mix. So you are when you're sending for mastering, you're basically giving uh, it's going through all of your mix bus things but just at a slightly less hard level yeah so presume presu oh, that's interesting so who's your yeah. do you have one person that you use for mastering? no so i have mike tucci dale becker those are the two guys that i use the most um and they and we've kind of everyone does it different because like some people don't do anything they just like literally send their mix wave send the instrumental wave like fully blown out like the way they've sent it to the client yeah. and the mastering just the only thing they can do at that point is you know, notch out some bad frequencies and try to get louder if they can, but there's not much room for them to do anything. Yeah. Um, I give them a little bit of headroom, 2 dBs, maybe 3 dBs maximum, depending on how loud the mix is. Like if I'm printing at minus six, which that's because I'm sometimes competing with the demo, right? I've got a demo the other day, a rock demo that was at minus four and a half. And the client, I swear to God, the client would not approve it unless it was as loud as the, the demo mix. He just, he did not. And this is a very, 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 very big artist. Mm. And he did not want to approve the mix unless it was as loud as the demo. And, 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 and that's just what it was. I didn't have a choice. I didn't have a right or wrong choice. It was just do what the client wants yeah. or don't, you don't get your mix picked. Yeah. I mean, that's uh And I didn't want to lose the client because he's really big and I was like I'm not fucking losing. This fucking <laughs> I I am turning this mix up. I'm putting it's, the god particle and I'm turning it all the way up. It's getting loud loud loud. Have you used that plugin? Yes, I do use it. I, I like it a lot. I don't it's not my only thing on the master bus like I'm not like that, but it's part of stuff that I do now. Um I like it on drums. Um, if it is on the master bus, which I've actually gotten a few mixes recently where, or like roughs sessions where it was already on the master bus. Oh, somebody's used like the, the, the they're, mix They're starting to come in. The, these producers and our engineers are starting to use the God particle because it makes their, the rough mix sound better. Yeah. Um, and they're doing stuff to it that then is hard to recreate without trying to just mix into that and, and keep the same vibe, you know? A lot of times when you're hearing a mix, what I've realized recently is like, you're not always hearing the mix that the engineer would have done. You're hearing the demo in a much better form, if that makes sense. Huh. And what do you, what do you mean by that? Like when you hear, when I, when I mix a record, right, I mix it against the demo, meaning that yeah. most of the levels, everything is sort of the same as the demo minus cleaner, a little brighter, he's right. harder, a little louder, these small things, right? I would have done that to any sounding demo. So mm -hmm. when you hear the final record, the mix is the demo, but way better, if that makes sense. So like yep, yep. The, the idea of how a record should sound doesn't always come from the mixer. Sometimes it comes from the demo and from the yeah. artist and from the engineer or the recording engineer. It doesn't always fully come from my ears does that make sense well, this You're sort is sort of working off of something else yeah this is something that you and i've talked about i've obviously talked about it obviously talked about it with castelli a bunch which is the mixing as a profession as a role has changed a lot in the last 10 years because everybody's rough mix is using similar tools uh, you know trying to achieve a maybe a less seasoned well trying to achieve a maximum they're trying uh, to achieve mix. a mix uh, yeah as close as possible 
Yeah, right? and so you're, you're getting you're getting it almost like, and this is where the the co mixing can come in. You're almost getting like a mix intent. Um, and then you're taking what they're yes. trying to do yes. and using your yes. professional ears and no. experience and gear and all of that. Exactly. So the thought of saying, well, when you hear a mix finalized on DSPs, most of the time, the lineage of that mix, how it became to sound like that is it's not word, fully lineage. You know what I mean? That's totally. what I started. That's a great, yeah, the lineage. The and, and it starts from the, the mix of the, uh, of the producer who's of the, slamming their track in a certain way. Not even that. Think about it. Sometimes it's the recording engineer at a studio. Mm. Think about that. Because the producer, of course, the producer's job is to try to make that sound the vision that he's created from the production. But as a recording engineer who doesn't necessarily have the vision of the producer, they're creating their intent on getting as close to the... And they're making decisions and they're putting delays and they're making the vocals X bright, right? Yeah. This bright or not bright. Those things are all going to influence the mix. Completely. Well, you that's know? why guys like you and Baines have become A-level mix engineers and coming from tracking engineers because tracking engineers now have so much more control. It's like, I, I don't know, I was talking to, I, I can't remember, it was either you or Baines talking about getting a Travis Scott vocal from his engineer. And when you get that vocal, it sounds like Travis Scott's vocal. You're not sitting right. there like trying to recreate something. Like they have yes. their sound dialed. He is mixing that vocal. And right. I, I, remind me his, his the, Travis's engineer's name oh i, I don't know i mean i don't i, I think we, I, I think we, we talked on instagram one time but um but yeah like that guy they have that sound dialed in and so it comes in with there's so much so much intent and so much control from the tracking engineer it's really yeah, interesting it's definitely changed so i was just having that thought the other day when i was mixing a record and i was like all my records sound like a good version of the demo yeah, you know what I mean. It's we. It's weird to think that, but now I'm not taking any way anything away from mixing because all these small little details. When you a b a record, even if the demo and the mix are close, as a music person, when you when you a b it, you're like, wow, they're miles apart. Even though to the average ear, it may sound like they're pretty similar. To well, us, is it's miles away from what that is. You know. Well, it's a funny thing. It's probably why I enjoy doing these lives so much, talking to mix engineers, because it's so, you know, some big double digit percentage of my career success has been the production finisher. Sometimes I'm mixing as well. Um, and you'll get, a, you'll get a record that is like 95% finished by some measures, but that last 5% is everything. It's and everything, that's really, right? what, really what separates it. And for, you know, guys like you and John and Baines and, and, and Kean and others to, to go in and take something that's like, ah, oh, this sounds really good. And then you go in and you're like, ah, but here's how we're going to make the vocal a little bit brighter, but we're going to subdue the S's, but we're going to get a little saturation yep. and the 4K is going to get a little ducked out so that we can make the whole thing a little bit brighter and the 808 is going to have more, like all those things, those subtle things really make those records sound finished and like like A-level records. Definitely. So um, yeah, that, somebody, that last 5%. Somebody asked a question. This is maybe my favorite question in, in terms of the wording of it. Um, Soul Jane, or Jane, I'm not sure how to say the name, uh, asked the question, uh, ask how to deal with fat 808s. They take up all the space, little fat-ass obese instrument. That's my favorite. This is my favorite. That's <laughs> favorite a great. I mean, ever. you know what? When I'm dealing with a big ass 808, those are the words that are going through my head. Like, fat ass. <laughs> little fat ass. Fucking, little fat ass. Fucking face. Um, yeah, for me, you, it's sort of get so much space in there, man. Like, so, does, they sound huge, but they don't get in the way. They don't take up too much headroom. To me, it's about decreasing the dynamic a little bit of it. And that'll kind of give you because a lot of times when you say something is too big or overtaking the Because it's doing like a doom, like there's just too so, much in the So that it's like boom. And what you yeah. want to do is you kind of want to create more of like the word is compression, but what I usually do is I'll use an EQ to sort of you'll see it on the EQ, like just to make it visual. Yeah, yeah. You'll see that you'll have this big boo and then it'll yeah. kind of subdue at the end. Yeah. Sometimes what I'll do with an EQ is I'll bring that down slightly. Mm. and just sort of slow, slightly tone down that really aggressive, because there's usually a frequency area that's 
booming really yeah, it's hard. Almost like that's the could, punchy, the punchy the, peak that goes first. Yeah. So I'll I'll slightly do, dial that down just a little bit. And are you doing just straight up EQ it. or doing some dynamic EQ? Or I'll, is, I can use yeah. So sometimes I'll do just an EQ if it's a little bit. If it's something that I'm like, let me do a little bit of EQ and then add a, a like a dynamic band to it. I'll do that too. It just depends on what I'm feeling. All these things are happening in the moment, so it's not yeah, like yeah. I and always do the same thing. Too. Yeah, so I'll sort of collapse the dynamic slightly, um, but then I'll add lo-fi and such and things to sort of re-boost it. But now I'm reboosting it as a whole, not with the dynamic. You know what I'm saying? So I'm bringing yeah. it down, but then I'm sort of reboosting the rambunctiousness across the board a little bit, yeah. and then compressing it and sort of settling it in. Um, I don't have that. The issue that I have the most is with the kick. So when the kick is the dominant, now there's two ways that the, a kick and an 808 can work in a song. Mm -hmm. Either the kick is dominant and the 808 is uh, uh, supporting, or it's the opposite. The 808 is dominant and the kick is supporting. Yeah. Now there's a couple easy ways to tell visually by looking at a song. If a song has 808 all the way across and just on the hook, the kick comes in, then the kick is probably not dominant. It's just there to create one extra level of punchiness boost to yeah. lift the song. Now, if you see a song where it's kick across and 808 more intermixed in, then the kick will probably be the dominant. So when the 808 is the dominant, those are the easiest records for me to mix as far as getting it really loud because the kick is where that that limiter gets smashed and you want the kick to be fat and big but not um but not like so big that it's killing the limiter right yeah so you kind of have to find a balance with that so if you notice like on the nail tech record that record is a kick driven song yeah right it's not an 808 driven song so in that record it was all about the kick and that record is going to be lower in loudness because we're preserving the dynamics of that kick like when you listen to that mix that kick is punching through we could have made the record louder overall yeah. but we would have had to give up you sacrifice some of that end. some of that low end punch to get louder without obviously you know fucking everything up so it's a delicate balance my guy but, yeah and it, it seems like too like you know the I've, I've run into this a lot just on the more like production sound design when i do those sort of tricks you're talking about for the 808 um, the more you do them, the more static they feel. And so you have to be careful not to lose the like, boom, like the, yes. as, as soon as you start doing that, then, the, then it becomes boom. But that's, that's playing with it and yep. figuring out that's playing with it and kind of dialing it and checking this. And maybe you're not, maybe it's not that frequency you need to drop. It's this, like, it's all just, it's all in the moment because like you said, every 808 is different. Yeah. You know what I mean? Even if it's the 80, same 808 sample that you got from another song, it might be in a different key. You know what I mean? So now you're in a different key. You know what I mean? And and, and the, the record is now kick-driven and not bass-driven like the other song. So now you're implementing the same 808 in a different fashion in a record. You're treating it completely different. And it's something that, that I've talked about before, um, this idea of thinking about low-end and time, um, where... If the if the lower the 808 notes are, the more time you need for them to really expand and actually go through a full cycle. The slower a tempo is, the easier that is to do. You could have the exact same kick and 808 samples in two different songs, and one's faster in a higher key, one's slower in a lower key, and they're drastically different approaches yes. to yep. how you're going to mix them. It's that um, small of a, of, a, of a thing that'll make the difference. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. Um, let's see. There were there were a few other. There's actually a shitload of questions. I want to grab a few while we got ten minutes left. My here. comment stopped working. It just got stuck. Oh, it's all right. They're um, they're having fun in there. Uh, I don't I don't know if I've seen the comments. In <laughs> they're having a ball. Um, let me see. Uh, oh, we we've talked about the two fifty one before, but if there were a few questions about why you like a 251 instead of a C800. So maybe we can run through that again. I mean, yes. I think, I think if I, it's funny, I don't own a 251. I have, um, a, a vintage, uh, U47 and I have, um, some to a pair of vintage 87s and they kind of cover what I need. But honestly, the next microphone purchase for me is probably going to be a 251. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that again, but, but you know, there's so much C800 out there. Um, but I think 
my opinion generally is that a 251 is a better it's, mic because you could just get more out of it. It's, yeah, it's one of those things where it's like everyone says C800, everyone says telephone 251, but the question isn't what microphone you're using. The question is what microphone does the person that you're about to work with sound better on? That's the question. I'm not, C800 is a, man, a fantastic microphone. An incre yeah. If I could own one, I would. I wouldn't yeah. use it that much, but I would fucking own it. You know what I mean? <laughs> mm -hmm. It's not about like what, it's about what the artist's voice demands. So with Chris specifically, his voice is more nasally and mid-ranging. Mm. The C800 in comparison, right, in relativity to the 251, <laughs> is a little bit more mid-rangey, and the 251, in comparison to the C800, is slightly more toppy, a little more air. Now, Chris's voice would could do with a little more air and not something that is accentuating some of the mid-ranginess. Yeah. That's why I choose that microphone. There's a, uh, there's a, now, now you're, now when you say a C800 versus a 40, um, and the 40, a 47 too, but, uh, a 87, right? I would choose the C800 over the 87 for Chris all day. Yeah. Because the 47, I mean, the 87 is a lot darker. Yes. You know, and that's just going to make my job a lot harder with CB. You know what I mean? I, you know, so anything that's, it's all about the, the artist. It's all about the voice, what you're working with. Sometimes you don't have the uh, ability or you're not, you don't have the, yeah, you don't have the ability to have the microphone that you could need for the artist. So you make do and you just figure it out in the EQ. Maybe you can hit an EQ on the outside and kill some stuff you don't want to record or just do it on the inside. I mean, like, it's not that it's not possible to record. It's just that when we have the choice, I'd rather make the choice that's going to get me there closer uh, with, you know, so that when I'm mixing, I'm not battling an extra battle. Yeah, that's absolutely. The, the thought process behind it. That makes a lot of sense. And, and to me, I think you, you hit it exactly on the head, which is these are both great uh, tube mics that have great high end. And the C800 just has a little bit more of that mid-range boost, which I think, you know, now I think about it, I mean, I'm just kind of going off the top here, but there's a lot of uh, that, that mic has been great for guys that aren't projecting like singers. They're much yes. more rapping. Rap is amazing. And and mumbly, obviously not in a derogatory way, is a genre that I love. But when the, the criticism of mumble rap, it's a lot of people who sort of die like this. And you, and when you add when, when somebody's sort of in this space, and you add that brightness and that mid range, there's a lot of clarity that comes and out you cut of it. Through right, yeah. which is great. I mean, if I were recording a rapper, I'd probably choose the C800 over the Telefunken, even though I could use both. Yeah, but I would probably choose the C800. I mean, it's like it's it's. I love that microphone as well. But I want to make my job easier in the mix process, you know? The other thing I like about a 251 um, is that you can record a lot of other instruments with it, too. You can oh, record yeah. everything from, like, a drum overhead to a mandolin to an acoustic guitar or whatever. And the C800, yeah. I find to be a little bit much for a lot of those other instruments. So Definitely, 251's yeah. got some versatility to it as well. Yep. Um, there's a good question uh, Mind of Absent asked. Uh, and, and I think I kind of want to ask a larger version of this question, but is there a creative momentum of recording every day versus taking time off and coming back to it? Do you find that, and I don't know when the last time you took a week off was, but uh, do you find that when you take time off that it takes a bit to kind of get back into the flow? Do you have like a sort of a life flow state? I mean, I, I travel a lot and I always find that if I'm off for a week, it takes me a week or two. And again, I'm doing more of the production writing side. Like right. I need to be getting back into the daily habit. And it takes me a bit until I, until I really dig into it. Do you, do you take breaks? How do those things like macro breaks? Yeah. yeah, yeah big time, breaks. Anything like that? Um, so I don't take weeks at a time. That's too far. Like I'll have anxiety, like about getting back to the studio. So I, I wouldn't be able to go like on a two week vacation. Like I, by yeah. the second week I'd be like, bro, I just want to go fucking home. Um, but I do need, so like right now I just finished the CB shit, which was, I was under a lot of stress and it was really heavy on me because I'm trying to at the same time mix outside um, and I was mixing two or three really big projects at the same exact time as delivering, you know, the entire album, Atmos, 360, stereo, everything, everything, dealing with the label, phone calls about this producer they need to get a hold of and this and that and just a constant thing. 
Um, so what I'm doing now is I'm not necessarily going on vacation, but I'm not mixing like today. I think today I had to mix like a hook for a close friend who I did it for. Um, and it was, it was like a 30 or 40 minute little mix, but I'm not doing anything today besides sending files and delivering. Like I don't want to mix right now unless it's a urgent matter because I've just come off of so much stress and I'm really burnt. So I find that when I take a small break, meaning like a day or two or three of, I'm still in the studio, like doing stuff and making phone calls and sending files, but I'm not mixing, mixing. That helps me so that by day three, I'm like, sheesh, I'm ready to get back in. I'm gonna have shit sounding right. Like, cause I don't like my, the creativity that I deal with is not like where you deal with. Like you might be writing a record and you're trying to come up with chords and you got to figure out the right chords that go with each other and the right sound that goes with those chords, all that stuff. Right. When I'm sitting down to mix 80% of what I'm doing is technical. Yeah. And 20% of it's like my creative freedom. You know what I mean? So yeah. that create, I don't lose the, that creative freedom that I get. I don't really lose it. Like, Oh, I got to get back into the swing. Like I'm not, I'm not feeling my delays. Like I was two weeks ago. Like that doesn't happen. Like my shit's always the same as far as like, it's just about my willingness to want to sit in this chair and smoke weed and mix all fucking day <laughs> has to come from me wanting it. Yeah. And me wanting it, sometimes when I'm burnt out from mixing is difficult to want to sit and do more and do more and do more when yeah. you're just burnt. Um, anything. You, I mean, if you do anything you love, right? Cause some people are like, well, how can you get burnt? Do you do something you love? Do you love chocolate? <laughs> yeah, Eat of course. chocolate three times a day for every fucking meal. Okay. <laughs> By week two, you're going to hate fucking chocolate, even though that's your favorite thing to eat ever. Two weeks ago, you're going to hate it. But if you eat chocolate every other day for dessert, you will maintain your love. So anything you do in too much, like anything in overly done, eventually is going to become old or you're going to hate it. You know, it so also you have to be careful with, with how you do it. Now, it's different, yeah. though, because when you're coming up and you have nothing right, you're just you, what's taking a break is doing what? nothing you're not yeah. breaking from you haven't done anything yet you're, so you just keep working when i was coming up and recording i wasn't like oh i'm burnt on recording because i wasn't i hadn't done anything i'm still grinding so i would just record 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 maybe have one day off and then back to recording back to recording until something came from it once you start having success then you start to have to time manage your situation you have to start managing okay i'm being asked to do this much now and I need to balance that out with my my, yeah. my, my, my my normal life. I didn't have a personal life when I came up. There wasn't. Yeah, it was too. it was just all recording, all music at all times. I, if I wasn't at a studio recording, I was over at someone else's studio hanging there, and then I was going to another studio after that. I don't want to be in the studio every day now because I'm going to become burnt. Yeah, yeah. You know? well, I'm also older all, now. I'm 32. Yeah. You it know? also sounds like you're, you're, and I know some people that do this, so it, it, it can work, but it also, you know, your three days off are not like you're going on a silent meditation retreat and turning your phone off. You're still, you know, oh, we're, talk, we're talking on a live, you're doing a thing for a friend of yours, you're doing super unstressful versions yes. at your yes. pace, no deadlines. And, yes. you know, that's, that's something that I, everybody's different with this, but I've found this to be very important, which is, when I'm burnt out on work, I can't, if I completely turn off music, then it takes me a while to get back into it. Yes. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm just finished a big project, I'll, I'll maybe come to the studio a little bit and just hang out and just play around with new sounds or just take a guitar home and play right. my guitar for a couple of days. So my brain is still in the mode and I'm yes. getting the joy back too. Like totally. you doing something for a friend of yours, you coming on here and, and chatting about stuff, like doing these things that keep our head in the game in a really unstressful, just like it's the unstressful way. thing. Cause the stress is really a lot. I mean, like even sending a mix off for the first time to a big client, <laughs> when I press send, I'm like, fuck, please tell me <laughs> they like this. It's like, like fucking a dude. And then, and then like, they won't respond at all. And they'll be like, Oh, they fucking hate the mix. Like, Oh, it's over. And then <laughs> my, I'll get, like, my career is six, over six hours later. Like going to listen to this as soon as I can. I'm just on a flight and I'm like, Fuck. I was <laughs> stressing the whole time. The whole time I'm stressing. 
you know, I think that I think that never goes away. You know, I talked to, to the legendary producer and manager Peter Asher on one of these lives, um, you know, uh, sometime in the fall. And he talked about like, he's like, I've been in the middle of albums and uh, and still have no idea how we're going to finish it or what the song's supposed to do. He's like, I feel like I have no idea what I'm doing. He's won all these Grammys and had all these hits. He's like, periodic, like still, I just feel like I'm not yeah. what's going on. <laughs> you know what's funny is as you become better at this and you start actually becoming good and getting awards, you start to realize how little you know what you're doing. <laughs> That's all that I'm going to say. That's what I, I'm like. People, I don't know what the fuck. I'm just sitting right here. I just sit between these two speakers. I got my gear here, and I don't know what the... F I pressed three on buttons in the morning. That's it. I don't know what the <laughs> fuck else is going on. And you notice, like, by the time I'm, like, 45, I'm going to be like, bro, I do not have a clue. Don't ask me anything. <laughs> I have no idea. That's, that's a beautiful way to be. Well, we, we can end on that note. Uh, TZO, my brother, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Thank I appreciate you. So much, you. Um, I'm, I'm hopefully going to be back down in LA. I'm going to go to Nashville and then I'm in Hawaii for a project and I'm in the Bay, but I think I'm going to come down Hawaii. to LA, uh, sometime. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll FaceTime you from Hawaii. Maybe we'll do a live FaceTime. <laughs> Maybe I'll meet you there. I need to fucking, I'll go there for two days. That sounds good, man. Yeah, well, hey, I got a project you can come work on until you can get a little bit of that, like, joyous, Let's a little bit of that. <laughs> a little bit of that. All right. My, thank my you, brother, Matt. I, I appreciate you. it. Thank you so much, man. Have a good one, brother. Peace.